0: Hello, friends, and welcome to the Dustcast, the podcast dedicated to exploring the ancient context of our faith. Today, I want to look at one of my favorite Hebrew words, as well as a couple of passages from the Sermon on the Mount that I think relate to how we can apply the concept. But first, since it's just me on the episode today, I thought I would start by doing a little bit more of an introduction, uh, which is a bit odd, admittedly, since I've been doing the podcast for about six months now to finally get around to an introduction. But I realized that I've never really said a lot about myself. And if I'm going to invite you to walk alongside me in this journey of exploring the ancient context of the Bible, maybe I should uh, let you get to know me just a little bit more. So uh, my name is Jason Mahler. I live in the Houston area. And I guess first and foremost, I would say that I am a husband and a father. My wife and I have two sons, currently eight and six years old, and I actually have a job that is not related to this topic in any way whatsoever. I work in the healthcare field, um, but I've been interested in uh, the topic of the ancient context of our faith you know, for many years now, as I, I think I have talked about a bit on a couple previous episodes. I attend... Bamol Church of Christ here in the Houston area. I actually was born and raised in the Churches of Christ, and if you're not familiar with that faith tradition, we uh, are part of the American Restoration Movement and uh, have some connection then with Christian churches and the Disciples of Christ, tend to be a, a church that is uh, very committed to the authority of Scripture sort of a low-church, non-liturgical format most of the time, um, congregational independence. And um, when it comes to theology, we tend to be somewhat Arminian in our soteriology, tend towards amillennialism in our eschatology, and um, I'd say tend towards being a bit Anabaptist in our politics. And historically, the Church of Christ has had um, certainly times of sectarian history. And I definitely um, find myself being much more ecumenical, which I think many in the Churches of Christ are becoming more ecumenical over time. Um, When it comes to my personal theologies and opinions on various subjects, I wouldn't define my views by many of our kind of historical doctrinal distinctives. But one of the great things about the Church of Christ is that we tend towards um, not having statements of faith define uh, congregational membership, and so there is that freedom to uh, explore theology. And um, so while in many ways I wouldn't define my faith uniquely in terms of our distinctives, I do love my congregation deeply. I'm blessed to be a part of a congregation that is extremely diverse racially, um, socioeconomically, even in terms of age. I teach a Sunday morning class most Sundays and on any given Sunday it would not be unusual to have members in the class in their 80s and 90s as well as people in their 20s. I remember one Sunday when um, somebody was actually celebrating their 100th birthday that day in class and then uh, I'm likely to have somebody in my class that just posted 10 or 20 ads for Bernie Sanders on their Facebook the night before as well as people who are staunchly conservative politically and somehow we managed to all get along quite nicely (laughs) and and actually love each other well and I think that has contributed to a lot of my focus on um, table fellowship and congregational fellowship and the power of God's reconciling love as we really do create communities of diversity and uh, do life together with people that we often might not find ourselves in regular contact with if it was just our normal lives apart from church. And so that's uh, a bit about me. As we dive into the topic today, I want to look at uh, what I said was perhaps my favorite Hebrew word, chesed, And as I pronounce that word, I will probably not keep up my attempt at pronouncing the guttural chet throughout the whole episode. I think that might get annoying. But chesed is one of the primary Old Testament, or I guess I should just say Hebrew words for love, the way that God's love is described. But the interesting thing about the concept is it seems to be at least equally loyalty, as it is love. And so you see it translated a number of different ways, depending on what version of the English Bible you're reading. Uh, Translations like steadfast love, mercy, goodness, dutiful, steadfast love, faithful love, loving kindness, loyalty, or constant love. And so you see a lot of those will put together these kind of two concepts of being loyal, steadfast, or constant, as well as loving, merciful, good, uh, and faithful. And this one kind of uh, holistic concept of all of those terms in Hebrew is such a powerful word for love. And as I was growing up, I I know I've heard many sermons and Bible class uh, discussions of all the different Greek words for love, agape and philos, Eros and Storge. But until much more recently in my life, I'd never really heard of Chesed. And even though the majority of the Bible is written in Hebrew, and most of the New Testament authors probably spoke Hebrew, as well as Aramaic and Greek and other languages, um, we just haven't focused on this word as much in the church, I don't think. And yet it's such a powerful word in the concepts that it combines. And as we look at the Old Testament's descriptions of God's hesed towards his people, that is what drives his mercy and his goodness and his kindness, despite our repeated sins and the idolatry of the nation of Israel. And so, as I think about how we might then apply that in today's world, amidst the high divorce rates that we have, and orphaned children, um, broken families, and other concerns, is there not such a deep need for loyal love in our world today? And even amidst the utter loneliness that can be the postmodern life in so many different circumstances, isn't it Hesed that is so sorely missing from our culture today? And so as we look at Hesed, I want to look at a couple of passages from the Sermon on the Mount, which I think is one of the most beautiful encapsulations of Jesus's teachings and is such a Hebraic sermon in terms of the way that Jesus pulls from his culture, from the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, in the things that he then uh, expounds upon. And so I want to start with his discussion of anger in Matthew chapter 5 verses 21 through 26. I'll go ahead and read the passage. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you were offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, These verses begin a series of six examples that Jesus gives on how to fulfill the law. And in each case, he refers to an old teaching. Often, he quotes directly out of the Hebrew Bible. And then he goes on to provide his halakha, which is his interpretation of how to walk with God, his interpretation of how to fulfill the law and live it out in even a deeper sense. And you'll see in most English translations, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And I suspect that at least to some degree, that translation of but in but I say to you might be a poor translation or at least slightly misleading to us. Um, There's a lot of debate about what Jesus spoke as his primary language. Was it Aramaic, which was the most predominant common tongue of the day in that region? Or would he have taught in Hebrew, which was still perhaps the religious tongue? And uh, we have later Jewish writings like the Mishnah being written down in Hebrew as they comment on the Hebrew scriptures, the Tanakh. And in Hebrew, uh, the, the short conjunction Vav can mean both and, and but, either one. And so it's possible that if Jesus was speaking in Hebrew, when he says, but I say to you, that that also means, and I say to you. And this may be making a big deal about a little conjunction, but I think the point here, to me, is that Jesus is not providing stark contrasts to the first teaching in most cases, at least that's what I would argue. Um, You'll sometimes hear this whole section of the Sermon on the Mount referred to as the antitheses, which means the opposites or the contradictions, as if Jesus is setting up his own teaching as a complete opposite to the original Torah teaching or something that contradicts its fundamental essence. And I just don't think that's the case. Jesus is not negating the old teaching, teaching he's deepening it. And in fact, Jesus specifically says that he has not come to undermine the law, but to fulfill it which was a common thing for rabbis of the day to talk about. How do you undermine the Torah and how do you fulfill the Torah? And so in this specific passage, Jesus is talking about the Torah command not to murder. And he traces murder back to its root cause, which is anger and insult and condemnation. And then he gives two examples of how you can live this out in your daily walk, your halakha which both illustrate reconciliation. And in our Western philosophical culture, and even in our modern church culture, I think we sometimes have the perception that uh, quote-unquote negative emotions like anger are wrong, that the emotion itself is somehow wrong. We have a culture that tends to really idolize what we view as dispassionate reason, pure logic, and rationality. And a quick reading of this passage in the Sermon on the Mount may make us think that that's exactly what Jesus is saying, because he says that anyone who is angry with his brother may be liable to judgment. But I'm convinced that Jesus is not speaking just of anger per se as an emotion, but of the dangers that we face by allowing that anger, condemnation, and bitterness to dwell in our hearts instead of God's mercy. So I want to look at a couple of things that relate to this. Jesus is talking about the command not to murder and how you'll be liable to judgment. But that idea in the, in the Hebrew Bible, in the Tanakh, goes back even further than the Ten Commandments, all the way back to Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, when God is speaking to Noah. And he says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So remember that rationale for why we should not shed the blood of man. Because God made man in his own image. And then skip ahead to the New Testament. And in the book of James, which is a very Hebraic book. And often sounds like a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. We see the following uh, quote in chapter 3, verses 8-10. through James says, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. And so here we see a powerful connection between the rationale for not murdering in Genesis. And the rationale for not cursing people in James. Both places say the rationale is that people are made in the very image or likeness of God. And so the dangers of mankind's quickness to anger go all the way back to the first recorded sin outside of the Garden of Eden. Cain's murder of his brother Abel was caused because when he saw that God had no regard for his offering, he was, quote, "...very angry." And his face fell. It's from Genesis four five. But then in contrast, God Himself describes his own nature to Moses as merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's from Exodus thirty four, verse six. And the the word there for steadfast love is this Hesed. Our anger is often driven by self-righteousness, critical judgment of others, or our own insecurity. And then rather than seeking reconciliation, we may let this anger dwell and fester in our hearts until it develops further into fury and insult, hatred, and then perhaps even physical violence and murder. And your your anger... May never get all the way to murder. I haven't killed anyone all day long. And depending on how my kids act tonight, I think I've got a pretty good chance of not killing anyone for the rest of the day either. But Jesus says that it isn't good enough for us to just refrain from physical violence while still insulting and degrading those around us. It isn't enough to keep our insults on the inside and to quietly stew in our own anger. You see, this is all on the same line, so to speak. Murder may be further down the line, but anger and insult and condemnation and fury are all on the same line. And the real question isn't just how we move down to the lighter side of the line, how we move down the spectrum a little bit, but the real question is how do we get off the line altogether? And so anger is not an evil in and of itself. A word search on anger or angry in the Bible will quickly show that the term is applied to God for far more often than anyone else. And Jesus certainly displayed anger in certain circumstances when dealing with hypocritical spiritual leaders, when cleansing the temple. But the Bible says that God is slow to anger and quick to show mercy. He's driven to anger when he sees the oppression of the poor the fatherless, the widowed, the helpless. He's driven to anger when our sin mars his beautiful creation. But then he finds a way to restoration. I think one of the most beautiful summaries of God's nature in a single verse is found in the Old Testament, the the Hebrew Bible or the Tanakh. In 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 14. When David is struggling with his son Absalom's sin, Absalom had murdered his brother Amnon and fled from Israel. A woman of Tekoa is sent to David to plead for him to reconcile with Absalom. And here's what she says. Like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But that is not what God desires. Rather, he devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. And so, from the first sin in the garden, the Bible is the story of God devising ways for us to not remain banished from Him. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us a couple of ways to get off the line. And like God, we are to seek reconciliation above all else. Jesus says that our relationships, our love, our reconciliation is more important than worship itself. Gifts at the altar. And what would it look like if we really lived that, that out? What would happen if Christians really turned their cars around on the way to church to go make up with an insulted family member or friend or neighbor instead? People will continue to do things that make us angry, and often justifiably so. But if we realize our own desperate need for God's mercy and the joy of our reconciliation with him, then I think we will be be more able to pour that same love and mercy onto those who wrong us. So this is a really practical section of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is giving us steps to live out a deep righteousness. And at this point, I face a great risk. My natural inclination is towards being an intellectual, academic Christian. It's easy for me to get excited about the study and then glide right past the application. But I don't want this to just be about identifying the Hebrew words that Jesus used or the Hebrew Bible verses that he preached from. I want it to change us. And so, what do you think we can do to really live differently tomorrow? How can we, even today, help to build and restore relationships? How can we express love and mercy and seek reconciliation? How can we exert a powerfully subversive force of love and grace on our broken culture in a way that treats other people as God's image, deserving dignity and respect? One way I think we can do it is through spiritual disciplines, things like prayer and Bible study. You could read Matthew five twenty-one through 26 every day this week. You could commit it to memory. Memorize it so that it will be with you for the rest of your life. You could begin each day with a simple prayer like this. God, how can I make this moment a kingdom moment? Open my eyes to see someone hurting on whom I can pour your love and mercy. Or you could think of someone specific that has something against you and take the first step towards reconciliation this week. Regardless of who was at fault or who you think was at fault, you take the first step towards reconciliation. And then if you find your anger boiling up sometime in the next few days, this week, stop and thank God for his great mercy towards you. And then remember that the person you're angry at was made by God in his image too. And do they need the same mercy that you need? So that's a few ideas, but there are so many practical things that we can do. What what are your ideas? I would love for you to leave a comment on the notes uh, blog post on the show page at thedustcast.com. You can tweet something. You could post something on the Facebook page. Share your thoughts with the community. How can we make this practical? And so I think we maybe have time, and I'll have to be perhaps a bit quicker, but to look at one more verse. And I, I see some of the same themes in this next section. This is uh, verses 27 through 32 in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus continues by saying, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So we've just looked at murder and anger. And as I've studied this next passage, I've come to believe that some of the deeper principles behind these two sections are really connected. I'm not saying that anger and lust, lust are necessarily connected, but that some of what Jesus is pulling from in the deeper principles may be similar. And so last uh, in the last passage, we talked about how anger as an emotion is not necessarily inherently wrong. And I think there's a similar principle here that our sexuality is not inherently wrong. The Bible teaches that God is the God of creation. His creation is good, and sexuality is a gift to be rejoiced in. Proverbs 5, verses 18-19 through 19 says, Rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. And so we see that sexuality is not wrong, but it's a gift. And yet, if anger is not wrong, why does Jesus warn us so strongly about it? Anger is not wrong when it's caused by the right reasons and handled in the right ways. But in our fallen hearts, anger often, too often, becomes this downward spiral of negative, critical judgment, contempt, insults, mocking and ridicule and condemnation. And so Jesus says that we should not insult our brother because it is connected to murder. Not just because insult may actually lead to murder, but because the insult and contempt is wrong in and of itself for the same reason that murder is wrong. Because man is made in the image of God. And so I think that with sexuality it's very similar in the effect that our fallen hearts can have. And so we should not lust for the same reasons that we should not have contempt for people. The person that we would lust after has been created by God in the image of God and is worthy of far greater dignity and respect than we would be giving them. Randy Harris in his book, Living Jesus, says, The deep sin attached to lust and pornography is that you use another another person simply as an object of your desires. It is the ultimate selfish act. The other person doesn't matter at all except as a mean to fulfill your own desires. And that the objectification of another person is a violation of their fundamental dignity. He goes on to say that we have to look and see people in a different way. As fellow human beings created in the image of God. As people worthy of our respect. And then again as with anger... I would say that when it comes to sexuality and lust, we need to reflect on the nature of God. We were created in the image of God, and our highest calling is to try to restore that image in our lives as much as possible in this fallen world. And so when the Bible gives us a clear insight into the deep inner essence of God, we should pay close attention. So we looked at Exodus thirty-four, thirty-six about God's slowness to anger, but What follows immediately after that phrase is also really important. It says that God is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That concept of chesed that we've been talking about. So Jesus connects lust not only to adultery, but also to divorce. Lust causes us to use those we are not married to as objects to fulfill our own selfish desires. But that same attitude can creep into our marriages So in Living Jesus, Randy Harris goes on to say, as long as you're preoccupied with your own needs, when the other person is only an object to fulfill your needs, then when that spouse stops fulfilling needs in the way you want, then you'll throw him or her away and get another one. Jesus calls us back to a different view of the world, where people are to be loved, not used. Where faithfulness is a deep, and powerful characteristic of our lives. There was a debate raging among the rabbis of Jesus' day as to what Deuteronomy one meant when it said, If then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce. Shammai said that the only indecency that would justify divorce was sexual immorality. But Hillel said that something even like burning the toast or over-salting dinner was indecent enough. And then another sage said that even if he just found another woman more beautiful, that would be grounds for divorce, as his wife would find no favor in his eyes any longer. And it's interesting to me that Jesus' teachings are almost always more in line with Hillel than with Shammai on other issues. Shammai was known for his extremely strict views and was known as dour, quick-tempered, and impatient. By contrast, Hillel was progressive for his day, known for his kindness, gentleness, and concern for humanity. And so when you think of Jesus' concern for the poor and the oppressed, think Hillel. And when you think of Jesus shouting, You brood of vipers at the teachers of the law who tied heavy yokes to the people, Imagine him facing off against Shammai. But in this case, Hillel thought that the more progressive view of marriage and divorce was appropriate as well. But the truth is that such views can result in throwaway marriages, in treating people as throwaway people. Our love, kindness, gentleness, compassion, and concern for humanity... Are much better expressed through steadfast love and faithfulness. Indeed, our deep respect for people as worthy of dignity can only be fully expressed when we treat them as God treats us, loyally and with faithfulness. So, again, I would love your input on practical ways we can apply this. How can we see Christ in people? and treat them with the dignity that they deserve. So here's one more idea. If you're married, look into your spouse's eyes tonight and recommit to him or her that you will chesed them, that is, that you will love them with steadfast love and covenant faithfulness such that God models for us. What else can we do? Leave me a comment, leave me a post. I would love your input. And so I guess that's all for today. Thanks for joining in here with me. Um, I hope that we have some fun as we continue walking through the ancient context of our faith. As always, you can find the show notes at thedustcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter. You can like the page on Facebook. And if you like what you've been hearing, I really would love it if you would uh, subscribe on iTunes or leave a rating or review there itunes won't show a rating for a show until it gets a certain number of ratings and that can be really helpful in more people finding and joining into the conversation so thanks for being here with me go and have a blessed week